on the BBC World Service in association with ABC and All India Radio. This is Stumped. Hello from me, Alison Mitchell, and welcome to Stumped, a weekly look at cricket from around the world. And this week, we really mean it. We did the, the Makami route. Seven days later, we were at the, you know, on the roof of Africa playing this crazy cricket match in the crater. At I think the recorded height was 5,752 metres. We travel the globe on stumps and explore cricket in the most unusual of places, from the top of Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania to Europe, where cricket is growing in Italy. What's that? A cricket bat? And I said, that's right, a cricket bat. She said, cricket? I said, no, no, cricket. And she goes, and the horse? Where is the horse? I said, there's no horses in cricket, <laughs> I can assure you. And to the bottom of the earth in Antarctica, where penguins stopped play. So grab your passport and join us on our travels. Jim Maxwell of ABC Radio has his, and we're in the same city for once. Good to see you, Jim. Nice to be seeing you rather than just hearing you. It should make life a lot easier for us. <laughs> Indeed. Prakash Wakankar has made it through arrivals at All India Radio as well. Greetings, Prakash. Hi there, Jim. Hi, Ali. Well, the World Cup is heading for the quarter-final stage. Fourteen nations have been represented here over the last few weeks, but the game's world governing body, the International Cricket Council, recognises 106 countries where the game of cricket is officially played, and there must be more where it's followed passionately and played informally between friends. We'll be visiting some of the more unusual ones in this week's show. And to help us on the journey, we're joined by Paul Daniels, a member of a very special cricket team, the Captain Scott's Eleven. It was captained by the late Harry Thompson, a film producer in the UK. The team decided to try and play cricket on all seven continents and it's documented in a wonderful book called Penguin Stopped Play. Well, Harry dreamed up um, the idea, simple enough idea in theory, get a team of 11 men to play cricket on each of the seven continents of the globe. Like any cricket tour, however, it's just a little bit more complicated than that. Um, we we tried to um, fly about 20,000 miles in two and a half weeks playing in... It's almost as much um, as this World Cup. <laughs> <laughs> playing in all of the uh, continents and uh, there were some pretty hilarious and unexpected consequences of that uh, mission. So the journey starts in, in Antarctica, Paul. So why did Penguins stop play? Well, Harry uh, loved Captain Scott. He loved the idea of uh, gallant defeat coming second, and he thought Captain Scott would be a brilliant uh, motif for the team. He even dreamed up the motto, Modo Agredior, I'm just going out, I may be some time. And Harry was desperate to visit Captain Scott's hut in the Antarctic, and um, he spent much of his life savings trying to get down there. Unfortunately, in a bit of a bizarre quirk of fate, he didn't make it to the hut, the ice melted, and there was a, a bit of a scene where they had to retreat and head back to the ship. Well, Harry wasn't going to be defeated. He, he got out his stumps from his bag, put them in the ice, and declared there would be a game, New Zealand against the rest of the world on the Antarctic. Uh, there was a handy oar as a bat. It was all, by all accounts, an extraordinary experience. A, a giant skewer came up at one stage and took the ball away. The umpires had to sort of consult over that. Uh, a, whale, <laughs> a whale passed by the action, and a few overs proceeded. And then a, a couple of penguins arrived on, on, on a good length, and Harry shooed them away uh, confidently. But um, when hundreds of the little monochrome invaders turned up, they were stumped. They didn't know what to do. And I actually think it's the only cricket game ever to be abandoned. Penguins stop play. Sounds fantastic. Well, let's leave the bottom of the earth and move to Africa and the highest place on the planet that cricket has ever been played. 
In September 2014, a new world record was set for the highest ever cricket match after a group of international cricketers played, believe it or not, at the top of Kilimanjaro, Africa's highest mountain in Tanzania. I'm Ashley Giles, Director of Cricket at uh, Lancashire. I'm Claire Connor, a former England cricketer, member of Mount Killy Madness and work for the England and Wales Cricket Board. Heather Knight and captain of the Gorillas who beat Ashley's team on Killy. Uh, Phil Walker, editor of All Out Cricket magazine and somehow man of the match in the Kilimanjaro match. Well, for us, I guess it was David Harper um, mapping out on the back of a fag packet, basically in a pub. A great idea to play cricket um, at the highest level, as he calls it. I'm not sure it was, as it turned out, but um, to play at the top of Kilimanjaro. For me, it was a phone call after I'd... um, being dismissed by the ECB, I suppose you could say. I was doing the lawn in the back, back garden and um, got a call about going up the, to the peak of Africa. And it's a sort of opportunity when you're cutting the grass that you can't turn down. Well, let's fast forward, Claire, from his back garden cutting the lawn to Kilimanjaro. Most people know Kilimanjaro, of course, as Africa's highest mountain. Mm. But just set the scene for us. Where exactly were you on the mountain? We did the, the Makami route, so there's six or seven different routes, I think. Yeah, we started on the Saturday morning there, and seven days later we were at the, you know, on the roof of Africa, as Ash says, just below the peak, playing this crazy cricket match in the crater. At, I think the recorded height was 5,752 metres, and so that gave us the world record that we were looking for. So one of those amazing experiences that it's very hard to put into words. I'm sure it was. Heather, just describe the, the cricket pitch, inverted commas. What was it like? Yeah, well, basically it was a sort of roll-out mat that the porters had slugged up the whole mountain and a little bit of sand underneath, so naturally it was a slow and low wicket that I'm used to growing up in Devon. But, yeah, slow and low enough to sneak one through Ashley's defences and, and getting out LBW. Poor technique? It's not a big scalp, to be honest, is it? <laughs> uh, yeah. I've been out a few it. times in my career. And, Phil, conditions at that altitude, just how cold was it? Well, it was... Uh, ridiculously cold when we began at about two in the morning the final descent or ascent rather was obscenely cold it was about minus 12 13 at the time you stumble out of your tent and then you begin this trudge the sun comes up about five or six in the morning and those who have survived it and incredibly all 30 of us who began ended up completing the trip that was a profoundly beautiful moment when the sun comes up and there was the odd tear shed and what not just through beauty I mean exhaustion and anxiety a little bit as well two hours later we were actually at the peak starting this this ridiculous game now the thing is you're not meant to be up there for more than about 15 minutes and all the guides were saying this is crazy talk what are you doing you know you get up there you take your photo and then you head right back down we had to play a game of cricket up there 2020 10-10, 10-10. The clouds moved in. It was touch and go that we were going to get the game in, and that would have been a shocking irony if we'd we'd failed, actually, to complete it. So it's a 10-10 game, verified officially by the ICC as well. We are independent umpires, independent adjudicators. I have to say, I don't remember that much of it. My head had gone by that point. I just remember that I was there. Ash, I understand that you, like many people, suffered from altitude sickness. Just describe what sensations you you were feeling. Something I've never felt before. I mean, you have headaches. And when you say I had a headache, everyone just thinks we'll stop whinging about it. But almost like your head's going to explode. And through that trip, there was 10 of us on in our tent, in our group. And we all suffered at different times. It went quiet. There was a bond created probably on that mountain that will stay there for a long time or forever. 
Phil, man of the match, just um, summarise the match itself. I'm just trying to imagine, there you are at nearly 20,000 feet above sea level, mm. in a crater, on volcanic ash. Set the scene for us in terms of field placings, well, the match itself. We had these really cute little uh, Union Jack boundary markers, That's, that I can recall, and a map that was doing a, a barely serviceable job in as much as the ball would bounce and if you were lucky it would get above your ankles. Thankfully, I faced a few full tosses and so that, that's just fair game anywhere in the world, whether you're 6,000 metres up or not. I wouldn't say that anyone was running into bowl with any great enthusiasm, Gilo especially, uh, a standing start by Mikhaya, the big man. Mikhaya, However, Makaya and Tini, you know, the, the famous South African icon of, of, of their cricket out there, 300-plus test wickets, he was tearing in from the nondescript sight screen somewhere at the back of the crater, and I opened the batting. He was running in right for, from, his, from the biggest run-up he could, he could Making master. a nonsense of the altitude. Yeah, but this is Makaya. I mean, he's not built like everybody else, right? He danced and waltzed all the way up the mountain. I mean, it was just a walk in the park for him. I was looking through some pictures just recently and, and almost forgot the beauty of the glaciers at the top. Because you're sort of, your, your mind and your brain so moggy, that you just almost want to get off the mountain. But incredible, mm. these great big glaciers at the top of this mountain, top of Africa, uh, be something that, well, we should never forget, but almost had because of how your, your mind, your body's working at the time. But uh, unbelievable pictures and memories. And we were really lucky with the weather, weren't we? Because mm. other people do it, I think, and they can barely see 10 feet in front of them for the week. We had almost cloudless skies. So we had, it, it was sheer beauty, you know, unbelievable. Records are there to be beaten. Would you like to better it? I don't think it's possible from how the world's built. I don't think there's anywhere flatter enough or flat enough to play cricket in the world that's higher than, than Killy. I don't think that I'd ever do it again. The only way I might is if this lot asked me to go with them again or my kids said to me, Dad, please just go with me. Because it was tough but really rewarding. Well, congratulations to all 30 of the group for making it up, Kilimanjaro, and setting that new world record. And our thanks to Chris Dennis, who brought us that report. Well, cricket in Africa at the highest level, Jim. What about the World Cup trophy going to Africa for the first time? Can South Africa do it at this World Cup? Well, if de Villiers uh, has some friends, uh, perhaps they can. It seems as though he's doing everything on his own. He's top scoring in most innings. And when he doesn't get a lot of runs, South Africa's batting tends to fall away. So uh, they're a big chance of doing it if they can get all the bits together that matter with their, their bowling and their batting. And uh, who knows, they might be in better shape this time because they're not considered uh, the favourites, as it were. So a couple of matches time, we'll find out. Mm, can't be carried by one man, though. Paul, I hear you've got experience of, uh, of actually playing in South Africa yourself. Yes, we played in South Africa and one of the beauties of being able to, uh, lucky enough to travel around the world playing cricket is it allows you to confound some of your stereotypes sometimes. Um, sometimes South Africans get a little bit of a bad press, but when we were greeted at Rigersdale's second team in the, at the foot of Table Mountain by their captain, Greg Horton, a sort of big, beefy, both in South, Af South African variety. Um, we couldn't have had a better host, incredibly sporting, kind, gregarious. We had a brilliant game in a sort of dreamy location, a, a sort of few yards from the bottom of Table Mountain. I have to confess, we, we didn't win the game, but 
all cricket lovers you know the social side a beer after is an important part of the overall package and uh, we're Definitely. very proud that we won the relay race of pint downing the boat race <laughs> Um, not just the first time, but even the best of three, and uh, even even despite Greg's best attempts to down a pint in three seconds, and uh, we haven't actually been beaten in a boat race for about thirty years, so um, not that I can recall anyway. Stumped on the BBC World Service. Well, Paul Daniels, who featured in the book Penguins Stopped Play, is staying with us. And I hope all of you listening are keeping count of the countries that we've mentioned so far. At time to head to Europe now, home of England. I think we've done pretty well not to mention England yet on the programme. Uh, certainly every Australian I've met recently seems keen to talk about them, but I can't think why. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, Ma- may- maybe um, next time I have an Englishman captain the team. It's been a bad mm. Irish joke. <laughs> <laughs> it's been going around. Uh, there have been three European teams at this World Cup in England, Ireland and Scotland but let's avoid touching down on English soil in particular and we'll head instead to Italy where one of the oldest sports teams in the world is fighting to stay in existence. The Genoa Cricket Club was formed in the 19th century and is best known for bringing about the birth of Italian football. Now though it's the cricketers who need the football club that they formed in 1893 to keep them alive. Steve Crossman reports. So if you look down there, uh, there's some stumps even that we've left behind. Look, they've even got the general colours on it, red and blue. And I don't believe it, there's a rat there. Right, If you look closely, right next to that stump, you can see a rat gnawing at it. Local wildlife has just taken over and it's just depressing to see it. Genoa Cricket Club are one of sport's oldest institutions, but they're teetering on the brink of extinction. Lack of funds and the low-grade nets that we're looking at are threatening the existence of a club who began life in the 19th century. They dropped off the map for 100 years before English teacher Mark Ebery, a man with no coaching qualifications, instigated their rebirth. Which is the best sport in the world that you play? And it all began with a question from a teaching colleague when he was carrying some of his kit around the city. What's that? A cricket bat? And I said, that's right, a cricket bat. She said, cricket? I said, no, no, cricket. And she goes, and the horse? Where is the horse? I said, there's no horses in cricket, (laughs) I can assure you. When she heard that this bat was associated with that word, was so excited because she is a big Genoa fan and the name of the local football team is Genoa CFC. And I had never really understood what that first C was. I assumed it meant calcio, which is Italian for football. A meeting with like-minded people followed and then came the grand rebirth. Now, Mark thought that was job done, but then he picked up the Secolo newspaper to read a piece on the return of Genoa Cricket Club. And I went down the article and read more, and it said that our team had been put into the uh, tournament in that year's Serie C, which is the third division, and there was a new English coach going to train them. And then I looked down for his name, thinking it'd be some ex-player, and it was me. Well, starting the new club created a problem, but it's turned into one of Genoa's biggest strengths. Most teams will have one immigrant nationality, so a team of almost all Indians, Pakistanis or Sri Lankans. But Genoa have all of the above. They're Italy's most diverse cricket team. Born and raised in India, not far from the Himalayas, but with a Swedish father and a Genoese mother, Pashu Alsen is as international as it gets. I always say that I'm Indian inside, but Italian outside. 
for the moment. So it, it can change. So it's no wonder that club captain Nira Malamiga was a little confused when he went to recruit him. Well, Nira expected me as an Indian, proper Indian. So as soon as he saw me, he said, uh, excuse me, wait, I, I'm, I'm looking for a, an Indian person. He, uh, uh, can I talk to you later? I said, no, no, that, that's me. Oh, you're Indian? You don't look like an Indian. Do you know how to play cricket? I said, yes, I lived in India. 18... Oh, my God, do you have an Italian passport? I said, yes. Oh, excellent. Right, throw the ball, Paolo. I'm dead! He's out! He is out. The stumps are down. Lasindu, how old are you, Lasindu? 13. Is that your first BBC journalist wicket? <laughs> yes. How do you feel? Well, was it no ball? <laughs> was, it no, was it a no ball? <laughs> no. My father um, learned, teach me to bowl, and my specialist bowl on leg and middle stump out. <laughs> Genoa are unique because of their mixture of cultures, but they haven't forgotten where they come from. Serie A rules demand at least four Italians in every squad, and that's where Enrico Pinello comes in. He's a fashion designer who was asked to make shirts for the team. He turned up and decided the game was a bit like his favourite sport of baseball. And several years later, it's another sport that inspires him on the field. I like to dive, I like to run, so, you know, I've got no problem to get in the mud and get dirty and take the ball all over my body and get hurt. That's no problem, I just enjoyed it. I act like a, a football keeper, you know. My cricket teammates uh, told me, just block the ball. No matter what, block the ball. So I just try to block the ball. And the Italians are not just here to make up the numbers. Pashu and Enrico saved the club from relegation last season with a dramatic final day display. But let's not forget that this isn't a good news story. It's a cry for help. There's an assumption in Italy that the cricket team must be in good health because of their links to the football club. But well, that's simply not true. I do fear the, the future because at the moment things are looking pretty grim. In the next two years, it's all or nothing. With all of their problems, it is hard to see how Genoa can survive. But like most true underdog stories, a simple solution exists. It's just tantalisingly out of reach. A perfect location is available for Genoa to put the facilities in that could transform them into Italy's best team. But tragically, it's the one piece of land they daren't use, the home of the football team's biggest rivals. Ironically, the best place in the city where we really could play real cricket, Oliasco training ground of Sampdoria, is perfectly oval and up surrounded by trees. It is an ideal cricket ground. But we are quite sure that Sampdoria are the last people who would ever let us play cricket on their ground. We might damage the grass with our stumps and our horses. <laughs> Steve Crossman in Italy reporting there. Paul, the captain's caught 11 did play in Italy too, didn't they? That's right. We, we played in Lazio and Roma. It sounds so exotic, doesn't it? So special. But in reality, cricket in Rome was much more recognisable um, at home. Um, rain stopped play. It's not only the preserve of Britain. The match in Roma was abandoned to a huge deluge that my hometown of Swansea would have been proud of. And in the Lazio game, we were undone by a team of wily, brilliant <laughs> ringers, Sri Lankan ringers, um, who humiliated us. And I, I think um, we decided that uh, when in Rome, play against the Romans. Yes, and uh, whilst we're still in Europe, uh, the same team, the captain's caught 11, recently had a game in Norway, didn't they? That's right. I mean, as the Captain Scott 11, we wanted to do something very special for the 100-year anniversary of Captain Scott making it to the pole on the 17th of January 1912. I did toy with the idea of us going down to Antarctica and having another game there, 
but when it's difficult to get 11 players on a cold Sunday morning in Oxford, I, I thought that that probably wasn't going to happen. And then we, we suddenly came upon the idea of challenging the Amundsen 11 in Norway to a game to avenge those 100 years of hurt of coming second to the pole. And, and we found a, a brilliant team, Oslo Aliens, a great bunch of guys to, to play against. They, they adopted the title, the Amundsen 11, for the day. And uh, we played in the dark and under the floodlights at minus 10 degrees centigrade on an astro turf rolled out at a football pitch in the darkest depths of Oslo. Bizarrely and beautifully, we, we chose a team that we could actually beat, and, and so we won the game, and we all uh, regaled to the bar in the centre of Oslo, a bar named, suitably, the Amundsen Bar. And had something to warm yourselves up, no doubt, with those Absolutely. minus temperatures. Absolutely. Well, our odyssey must continue apace. Here's a question for all of you listening. Can you name the two test cricket grounds in South America? We'll give you the answer after Henry Blofeld's latest tale from the test. He's country hopping in South America this week, but doesn't visit either of the grounds in question. Alison, my dear old thing. I once went on a Derek Robbins tour to South America, and that was amazing. We started off in Caracas in Venezuela. We went from there to Quito in Ecuador. I, mean, I hope I got my geography right. Anyway, it's approximate. <laughs> and on to Lima in Peru at the, I think it was called the English Country Something and Tennis, Cricket and Tennis Club, that's right. And then we, I got very ill in Lima, I remember, didn't really get fully see the joys of it. Then went on to um, uh, Santiago in Chile, and in the, the Prince of Wales Country Club in the shade of the Atlas Mountains, simply a wonderful cricket ground. And I'll tell you what, some of that Chilean red wine at lunch didn't half go down a treat as well. And <clears throat> I think it took a few wickets after lunch, what I remember. Then we went on to uh, Argentina, and we played at, um, we stayed in uh, at the Hurlingham Club in Buenos Aires. And we played there. We played at, I think it was Belgrano, which is a ground right in the middle of the city in Argentina, rather like the HAC ground, the Honorable Artillery Ground in the city of London. And um, it was amazing. We had the most wonderful time. And then finally, up to Brazil, we went to Sao Paulo, and, uh, where we started off. And um, I remember... Uh, one or two of the side got into a bit of a problem when they spotted some, um, well, I better not say this, some, some lovely ladies in the middle of the night, but they eventually discovered they weren't ladies, but there we are, it's one of those things. And then we um, went to Brazil, to uh, Brazil, to Rio de Janeiro, where we played at Niteroi, which is the most wonderful ground. Uh, over that, it's the longest bridge in the world at that, in, in Rio. It was really a marvellous ground. I remember we bowled Brazil out for 11, and Derek Robbins, our uh, boss manager and chief panjandrum, was furious because four of them were buys and could have been stopped, which I thought was a a little bit dour, but there we were. But it was the most sensational tour. And in case you were wondering about those two test cricket grounds, the border cricket ground in Guyana and the new ground there, the Providence Stadium. Paul, the Captain Scott Eleven spent an interesting new year in South America, didn't they? That's right. Uh, we had a game in Buenos Aires. The real memory of that was how you've got to prepare socially for a tour. Obviously, the cricket is a big element, but all tourists know that the social element, you've got to be just as prepared as well. And we got that spectacularly wrong on New Year's Eve. We went out at 10 o'clock thinking this is going to be a huge party, central Buenos Aires. Absolute tumbleweed. Not a single oh, person really? around. Nothing. 
we wandered around a bit, sort of got a beer and sat in a park. And it was only a random firework that headed us towards a house party that we managed to inveigle our way into, held by an Argentinian army colonel and his family, which was an amusing interlude. And as we sort of staggered home at four in the morning, thinking, well, that was a bit of a damp squib, we saw a queue of 300 people queuing up to the Irish bar, which opens at 4 a.m., <laughs> on New Year's Day in Buenos Aires. Everyone's up with their families before that. I think it was about, oh, nine, that <laughs> about nine hours of partying later, um, I found myself in Buenos Aires police station insisting that they send out a search party for my missing Father Christmas outfit. Don't quite remember how that all happened, but I think you can fill in the dots. Yep. And do we know that the link between Argentina and this current World Cup that's going on the former Argentina coach is currently working with the Scotland team. Toby Bailey, who used to keep wicket for Northamptonshire, is, uh, is now part of the Scotland setup. So he's been over here. And that brings us to Australia, where we're going to finish our journey right here on the continent where Jim and I are and where the top nations of the world, well, some of them, are still in contention for the World Cup. Jim, do you still rate Australia as favourites with the potential for a home final? I think so. Um, upsets can occur. Uh, they have not yet played their best cricket, although they've played some very good cricket. I worry about some of their bowling. I think Mitchell Johnson's off his game. Mitchell Stark's right on his game. But it's the depth and quality of the batting and uh, their brilliant uh, fielding and catching that it's going to sustain them ar- around some players performing a bit better than they have. But uh, they, they look the best all-round team and probably the most confident. They could yet have some competition from New Zealand, but Prakash, do you think India might have something to say about their chances? Well, look, the way they've uh, sort of come back or resurrected themselves, I think uh, hopes are high. Uh, I do, though, I think agree with Jim that it's Australia's phenomenal batting. I mean, you get seven out and you still could go for 150 in the last 10. So I think India are at the moment playing it right. They're just going to take a game a day and uh, if they get past Bangladesh, then who knows? And Paul, who is your money on? I think it's going to be an absolute cliffhanger between New Zealand and Australia, but the Captain Scott 11 lay down the gauntlet to the winners. We'll take you on in a boat race any day. (laughs) That's a challenge. (laughs) Paul Daniels, thanks for being with us on Stump. We really enjoyed your stories. Thanks for stopping by. Absolute pleasure. That's Paul Daniels, who features in the book Penguins Stopped Play. Well, that's where we leave our tour for this week. And there's more to come from Jim Prakash and me if you're listening on the podcast. That's our extra cover section. But for everyone else, it's time to draw stumps. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Stumped with Alison Mitchell on the BBC World Service. Welcome to Stumped Extra Cover, available only on the podcast. More chats and more features from the world of cricket. Jim Maxwell of ABC Radio and Prakash Wakanka from All India Radio is still with me. And on this week's Stumped, we've been travelling the world. And so, as promised, we return to Africa. Now, a small UK-based charity is celebrating 10 years of coaching children in Kenya, Rwanda, Uganda, Botswana and Cameroon. Cricket Without Boundaries teaches the basics of the game and at the same time reinforces important HIV-AIDS prevention messages in countries where where the illness is endemic. Its unique teaching methods have been hailed a success. And Cricket Mad BBC News correspondent Phil Mackey raised more than $1,500 to join them as a volunteer coach in Uganda and has sent stumped this report. Go meet him, go meet him. 
Well, I'm in Africa. In fact, I'm in a town called Soroti in eastern Uganda. We're on a huge sports ground. There are so many people here who've come to learn the rudiments of the game and at the same time learn their ABCs. That's how Cricket Without Boundaries works. It uses those messages taught to the children in schools and reinforces them using cricket. Hello, children. We are Cricket Without Boundaries. We are here to teach you cricket, but put in the AIDS HIV message. Can someone tell me what does A stand for? Hi, I'm uh, John Colley from Cricket Without Boundaries. It's an absolute brilliant experience for all coaches. Um, it gets you out of your comfort zone. You do something completely different. We've had over 450 children here today. It takes the coaching manual out and it makes you really think about your coaching. And it fits hand in hand. If you listen to some of the chants, I'm sure you recorded going around, they're absolutely getting the message, the ABCT message that we're trying to promote. One of the great things about Cricket Without Boundaries is that as much effort goes into teaching the teachers. So we're late in the afternoon. You can hear all the noise going on around me. Most of the sessions, in fact nearly all, are now not being taken by CWB coaches but by the local primary and secondary school teachers. I'm called Madame Sylvia Agolo. I'm in Father Hilda's primary school. And what do you think of this cricket coaching? It's a good game. Is that a good way of teaching HIV AIDS awareness? Yeah, it's a very good way. It is a very good positive way of teaching children on how to handle HIV AIDS people and how to help them. They really have fun and they are very happy. And what about you? Have you had fun? Very much. 2020 what? We're teaching them how to play mini cricket at the moment uh, alongside our Ugandan coaches as well. I'm Wakamara Ronald. Yeah, it's been a great opportunity working with CWB. Not for the first time, but even the previous years I've been working for it. It's been really good. The messages they carry to the kids and the opportunities they give to the teachers to learn more techniques of how to communicate about AIDS to the kids through simple games, how to make it easier for the games to know about the killer disease. A stands for abstain, so during the coaching we say abstain from hitting the ball in the air and getting caught. B stands for be faithful, that can be be faithful to your partner, don't run them out. C is stands for condom, difficult to incorporate into cricket. However, we talk about protection, protecting your wickets, protecting yourself from getting hurt. And there is another letter, T for testing. Uh, which is obviously very important in a country where a lot of people maybe carry the virus but have never been tested. So again, you test your skills that you've learnt during the day at the end of each day's training. Today it starts all over again. We've left Sorotti, we're in Umbale, a much bigger city. And encouragingly, amongst the teachers who've come for day one training, are several wearing their CWB t-shirts from the last time we were here two years ago.
I am Patrick Kabole. I'm a teacher at Nashibiso Primary School within the Mbali Municipal Council. It's our second time for our school to participate in it. Do you remember the ABC message when you're coaching? Yeah, that is the abstinence, uh, being faithful to your partner, use a condom, then testing. The testing. But do you do that with the schoolboys yeah. and the girls as well? Yeah, we do that so much in our messages about their health. And is it successful? Does it help? Do they learn? Yeah, it does indeed work so much, those ones who are able to, to listen and take in our messages. Over a 10-year period across five countries, the charity has coached approaching 150,000 children. If you love cricket, if you have the opportunity and you can spare two weeks of your valuable time, then there is no better way to spend it, I can promise you that, than coming to Africa with Cricket Without Boundaries and volunteering. Oh, great ball, run, run, run! Sounds like I've got to find two weeks in my diary. What a fantastic charity and some terrific work that they're doing. Phil Mackey with that report from Africa. Well, on to matters at the Cricket World Cup and pressures rather mounting on England's cricket hierarchy after the country became the first big name to be eliminated from the competition after defeat to Bangladesh in Adelaide in their penultimate game in Pool A. It means they miss out on the quarterfinals and head home instead. Since England's last World Cup final appearance in 1992, they've been eliminated in the first round of the World Cup on three occasions and have failed to win a single match in the knockout stages. With yet another period of soul-searching and blank sheet of paper planning under the way, how can England fix their one-day team in time for a home World Cup in 2019? Former England batsman and Test Match Special Summarizer Geoffrey Boycott lays a lot of the blame at the door of head coach Peter Moores. Well, it sounds as if he'd like to look and blame everybody else but himself. And he's in charge. And when you're in charge of a team, whether it's football, rugby or cricket, you have to accept that it's a results-oriented business. And if you don't get results, then the spotlight's going to fall on you. So he can't absolve himself. I would say that uh, we need a more fierce, intense, one-day competition... I would think that South Africa and Australia have better competitions and some of the other countries even. Uh, they've been doing it for longer and when you watch them, it, it is fiercer. We, we tend to... Ours, it, it seems kind of low-key when you watch it. It doesn't seem to mean quite as much. And you need to play in a brand of cricket that is fierce and competitive and intense, and that makes you a better player. It's like playing against better players. When you play against better players, you're up against it. It stretches you. Just a little look a little bit more closely at this particular World Cup campaign. Something that Peter Moore's said in the post-match interview, which, is, which has stood out, is 275, we thought it was chaseable, we'll look at the data. Quite a lot has been said about England's supposed reliance on numbers and stats. Has this been a very stats-driven World Cup pain? Is that one of the flaws? It's one of the flaws of Peter Moores. I'll answer that. If he has no experience of playing international cricket in any form, then he has to go back on stats. He has to have people with computers. I watch the game because I play it. I don't need any computer or stats. I watch and I see the nuances of the game changing. I can see it. I can feel it from 150 yards away up here in the commentary box. I can see things that I know are better for the team. 
and there are many people out there, don't misunderstand, I'm not saying I'm the only one, I could give you a list of ex-players who were brought up to watch and see the nuances and changes in the game before they happen and not wait until somebody's hit a four. He doesn't have that experience. I don't say it's impossible to coach. You know, you have to be a former player, but I sure as hell think it helps a great deal if you've been in the cauldron, abroad particularly, hostile crowds, different grounds which you're not used to, and handled being in team dressing rooms when the chips are down, when there's pressure, when there's people like Mitchell Johnson whistling it round your ear roll and you see what goes on in the dressing room, I think you have something to offer. If you've never been there, I think it takes a very, very exceptional person to pull it all together as a coach. Jeffrey Boycott, never short of an opinion. I mean, Jim, this has got to be the worst performance we've seen from England at a World Cup. Defeat to Bangladesh aside, the nature of the the heavy defeats against the top nations, Australia, Sri Lanka, New Zealand. They haven't improved since that tri-series with India and Australia. The back end of their cricket was poor then in terms of trying to quell the opposition's batting with the ball or ramp up the game in their last 10 overs. And uh, then it just all fell apart because uh, there was no batsman, dominant batsman in their lineup. I think they got it wrong having Gary Balance at number three. Butler should be batting higher. I think they need to be looking at that. They just don't seem to have uh, the players nor the confidence that, that comes, of course, when you are doing well. And dear old Morgan, he couldn't get a run. No. And so uh, I, I don't know where they go from here. Uh, who's going to name the players that are going to replace those that are in this side that are going to make a difference? And who is going to put his hand up or be invited to the table for whatever uh, piece of silver that's offered to do the job that Peter Moores is doing? Mm. Questions that will be asked about Peter Moores' role. Prakash, do you agree with what Jeffrey says, that to be a good international coach, you need to have been an international player? Not necessarily. I, I think there are examples of, of uh, people who have coached extremely well uh, across the world in different uh, levels. But yes, I think it's a huge advantage if you've played the game. There's no doubt about that because, as Jeffrey rightly says, you, you sense things uh, in, in your gut, don't you? You don't rely on, on all the tools that are available. So I think it's an advantage, but I don't think it's absolutely necessary. And Jim, there have certainly been coaches who haven't played at the top international level. Sometimes it's more about man management. Yes, I think John Buchanan brought a lot to the role of coaching the side, even though he clearly had a very good side that won 16 straight test matches. But I think if you speak to some of the players who are involved under him, they'll give him a big rap. Shane Warne mightn't, but then it wouldn't matter who was coaching in his case, perhaps. For him, coaches get you from the dressing, from the hotel to the cricket ground, don't That's they? That's right. But I, but I think he, he brought a certain rigour to it all and some analysis that, that was useful. And he also brought the support staff uh, that we now look at and think, well, there's more support staff than players. But in many ways, this is the professionalism that's uh, come into the game and it's what's required in order to, to make the team perform at its best all the time, provided you've got the raw material to do so. Mm. And it, it seems as if there will be a, a sort of root and branch investigation again, as there often is when a team crashes out of a World Cup early and the whole of the domestic structure is being thought about as well as at the top level uh, of England. And it feels as if the whole the one-day culture uh, that England has is just yards, years behind the rest of the world, whether that is to do with 
players not being exposed to 2020 IPL in the same way that many other players around the world is. I don't know. But there are England players who have been available for IPL and they're not bought. So I think just making England players available for IPL and as Downton has said, we need to get more players in the IPL. I'm not sure that is going to be a quick fix for England's one-day woes. I don't think it is. And uh, it'll manifest itself as we roll on because... Test cricket could be similarly affected with New Zealand and Australia visiting in the English summer. Mm. Well, it may have been disappointment for England, but for Bangladesh, well, it was a game that led to their finest hour, bowling out England's Stuart Broad and Jimmy Anderson in the most tense of finales in Adelaide to see them qualify for the knockout stages for the first time. Bangladesh had another first two. Never before had one of their players scored a World Cup century until this match. Mahmoudullah Riyad changed all that. So for both him and his country, was this the biggest win that they've ever had? I think probably the best day. I think so far because it's a great occasion. Um, really special, really honoured, really uh, the way the boys fought in the middle. Uh, really special, yeah. You looked absolutely ecstatic when you reached your 100. Can you describe what the emotions were like for you out there? Uh, really, uh, because that's my first 100 and uh, this is World Cup and I'm scoring the first 100 for Bangladesh in World Cup as well. So that is really special. Uh, I was really missing my family at the moment. Uh, that time, uh, my wife, my, my little boy and my mom, uh, who has been great inspiration for me. So I really want to dedicate them. Prakash, a great day for Bangladesh, qualifying for the knockout stages for the first time. Absolutely, Jim. I think uh, you know the, the crowd in Dhaka and, and uh, Chittagong and everywhere else in Bangladesh must have been absolutely ecstatic. Uh, mind you, they have been making some serious progress. Uh, the, the BPL, I think, has helped the fact that some of their players are getting in and playing in the IPL, also undoubtedly helping. And one just feels very happy for them, isn't it, with some of the controversy that's gone on in that country for a while. And Ali, uh, you watched the game. Did they impress you, improving their place on the world stage? Yeah, Bangladesh really did, not least Marmadullah's innings, but the way they then bowled and defended that total. The bowlers stuck to their task. They bowled good lengths. They bowled good Yorkers uh, towards the end in particular. They fielded well. I think they were they were fully worth the victory over England. They earned it, and they've deserved their place in the quarterfinals now. So Bangladesh through along with Sri Lanka, Australia, New Zealand, India and South Africa. Who are going to be the last ones to join them, Jim? Well, the sentimentalists will be hoping Ireland make it, but they'll probably get pipped by Pakistan and the West Indies for those two spots. And uh, I'm not sure about Pakistan and the West Indies going any further than that. Uh, What about you, Prakash? Could Ireland sneak through? Well, I think the Romantics uh, would want that to happen, wouldn't they? But I doubt. I think I'll go with Jim's uh, prediction. And the second part of it, too, I think uh, those two teams are going to struggle. But uh, it's fantastic for Asian cricket because four uh, countries making it to the quarterfinals probably for the first time. Indeed. Well, that's all from Stumped Extra Cover for this week. Thanks to Jim and to Prakash, and thanks to you for downloading. Hopefully you'll do the same again next week when we'll be looking at the art of cricket commentary. But that's it from us. Bye for now. Stumped is a BBC sport production for the BBC World Service in association with the Australian Broadcasting Corporation and All India Radio.